But we will get there, my friends. We will get there. My name's Hartzell. On the show today, we take back America, ladies and gentlemen. Part two of our conversation with Sarah Nelson. She's the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, part of the AFACWA. Last week, Sarah was the keynote speaker at the Harvey JK series on democracy. That's right, our guy, Harvey K, Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. You know, he takes back America with us every single week. Well, they name a series after my guy, and we do part. Part two on the show today. If you have not listened to part one, it is last Tuesday's show, October 26th. It is a must listen. You want to get fired up? You want to get fired up? Kansas City, ready to go. In fact, she's got some thoughts on former President Barack Obama. She's got some thoughts on President Joe Biden. And in part two, Sarah kicks it off in the here and now. We take it to the pandemic. And from there, Sarah takes it away. After the lecture, Sarah then also takes a question from the audience. And I'll tell you right now, the question was... What is the point? What is the goal of unionizing? Well, Sarah's got the best answer for you. My name's Hartzell. Up next, part two of the Harvey J.K. series on democracy. It is a good day to be a Kansas City, and my friends, it's a good day to be a Kansas City. My name's Hartzell. We'll see you in the morning. Bye. I am black, beautiful, The pandemic took an immeasurable toll on working people. In the face of unsafe working conditions or not enough work to go around, millions of workers suddenly understood why they might need a union after all. We needed help. There was no pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps solution, and no one could credibly sell that false brand of freedom. We needed help from our government, and the clarion call that we're in this together was no slogan. It was a life-or-death imperative. Now, aviation is a perfect example. As our industry went into freefall, we weren't about to let the executives, investment bankers, or bankruptcy vampires set the game plan in crisis. We've been there before, and when we said never again, we meant it. We knew we had to drive the agenda or the agenda would drive us harder and worse than ever before. As airline demand fell 97% practically overnight, the entire industry was on the brink of collapse. We had a small window of a couple of days to set the agenda on our terms for an industry that needed our help to get anything out of a dysfunctional government. We didn't simply have a list of demands. We said the demand was us. Just like Sherrod Brown said recently, Worker power is not the problem, it is the point. Our jobs, our paychecks, our health, our future. We didn't treat our labor as a slideshow. We demanded the industry and our government recognize us as the main event. Our demands became the Aviation Payroll Support Program, an historic first-ever Workers' First Government Relief Plan. Our program covered paychecks and benefits for 2.1 million workers, prohibited involuntary furloughs, layoffs, or cuts to our hourly wages. At the same time, we also capped executive pay and benefits and banned stock buybacks for one and two years, respectively, beyond the relief period. 
We were able to stay connected to our job and ready to fly again as travel resumes. We know we supported millions of other jobs that we paid that were there because we paid our rent, our cable bills, ordered takeout and delivery that supported local businesses and local jobs with the state and local taxes we continued to pay. Our social security contributions, Medicare, and all the programs that suffer too when jobs are lost kept getting support from our employment. Our payroll support program provided stability and security for thousands, hundreds of thousands of workers, from pilots to mechanics, ground crews, and others who make the airport life possible. But we didn't achieve that through good luck. We achieved it by demanding what we needed, working hard to get it, and refusing to quit when we were told it wasn't going to happen. When a Republican senator said they wouldn't sign on to the letter to support our program, we sent 25 flight attendants to picket at their office, and the next day they were begging us to get onto a letter and asked if I would tweet it out if they did. That is the power of direct action and collective action and our solidarity. As Harvey's childhood friend Thomas Paine once wrote, these are the times that try men's souls. In common sense, Payne wrote, it is not in numbers but in unity that our great strength lies. What's interesting to note is that the capital class, despite lacking numbers, shows unity. I saw a funny tweet once that said, remember how a big part of Knives Out was that the rich family all had different political beliefs from leftist to the alt-right, but they all formed a united front once they realized that a working class girl was going to get the money that belonged to them? My personal hero from history, the great labor organizer Mother Jones said, the capitalists say there is no need of labor organizing, but the fact that they themselves are continually organizing shows their real beliefs. The capitalists in this sense, the billionaires and the CEOs, don't have the numbers, but they do have unity. They will come together in force to stop working people from tasting a hint of our power. They'll use every resource they have to keep us from finding unity. After a bloody fight, Mother Jones told the mine workers, sure you lost because you only had the Constitution. They had bayonets. In the end, bayonets will always win. But we must fight and lose. We must fight and win. And above all, we must fight. Here's my theory. Bayonets work in the short term, but in the long term, that kind of violence makes the clear choice for workers. It's the same kind of choice people faced when they saw police turn hoses and dogs on peaceful marchers in Selma or using tear gas and batons on protesters in Lafayette Square. It's a choice that demands us to answer the question, whose side are you on? The Chamber and the National Association of Manufacturers and other business groups began investing heavily in anti-union PR and propaganda in the 1950s. And for 50 years, they indoctrinated generations of workers with the lie that we should feel lucky to have a job. They made unions a dirty word. They said that they had no choice but to ship jobs overseas because those union contracts made it impossible for them to compete in the U.S. They told us greedy teachers and firefighters were bleeding our public coffers dry with their fat pensions. They told us we'd be better off on our own, that solidarity was a thing of the past, and the way to get ahead was to go it alone. That was never right, of course. And suddenly, in the wake of the pandemic, workers aren't feeling it anymore. We need to spend the next 50 years teaching employers that they should feel lucky to have workers. The workers are fed up. They're quitting in record numbers. They're walking out to demand fair treatment. And they're striking and picketing in every industry, in every corner of our country. And it's only growing. Looking at unrest in the world around him, Payne said, if there must be trouble, 
let it be in my day that my child may have peace. Now, on this, I couldn't agree less. Don't get me wrong, I don't want my son to grow up in a world of violent conflict. I don't want that for any of our kids. I also don't want them to grow up in a world where they can never get ahead, where they have to work three app-based jobs to survive, where a tiny few escape to their bunkers or to space while the rest of us drown in floods or burn in wildfires. If there's one thing I wish the labor movement would learn from the last 50 years, it's that there will always be something we need to fight for, and we can only win if we're willing to fight. Now, Walter Ruther, the great leader of the UAW, said to the big three, let's go together to Washington and win health care and pensions for all workers from the government. And they said, no, that sounds too socialist to us. And so he said, fine, I'll take it from you. And he did. And he set a standard in this country for those union contracts and a standard for that health care. But as this assault has continued on unions, we are all feeling the brunt of this. The idea that we are at odds with each other over the concept of health care for all as a human right, that there's a conflict between those with union contracts and those without, is the union busters at work. Because the idea started with the workers coming together and understanding that they could take care of each other in our collective action. And we are simply not done with that fight yet, but we will finish it. Paine had a skeptical view of government, and it's hard to blame him. His only experience of government was the feudal governments of Europe, where kings and a handful of royals bent the law to their own will, exploiting workers to take whatever they pleased. <laughs> Sounded all familiar a few hundred years later. I imagine he'd see something similar if he looked at what our democracy has become today. You don't have to look hard to see how much our government has been corrupted by a tiny handful of the most powerful, either to get their way or to make sure government is too frozen to stop them. In the face of all of this, it's easy to throw up your hands and quit. The fourth D of the Union Busters, demoralization. We've been divided into every person for themselves mentality, and every time you open a paper or turn on the news, it's about how divided we are. But we know there's a solution. It starts in the labor movement. It starts in the places where people spend their days, in the workplace. As Mother told us, the capitalists are always organizing. As I saw in the bankruptcies following 9-11, they will use any crisis to strip us of our rights and take back anything that we've won. If we're not ready to fight back, they'll win. And the only way to be ready is to make sure workers always have something to fight for and always see themselves in the fight. As Payne said, after all, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, and I will add, like women and non-binary and gender non-conforming people, undergo the fatigues of supporting it. If you are lucky enough to work just one job and just 40 hours per week, which, let's face it, is pretty rare for most workers these days, you're spending the majority of your waking life at work. The only way you can have rights and dignity, and yes, freedom, at work is with a union contract that guarantees you those things. There's another reason the bosses and their friends fight so hard to bust our unions. Unions teach us democracy. When we come together, sort out our differences to find common ground and go to the bosses' equals, we break down the isolation they try to sow. When we succeed, we collectively bargain a deal that improves our lives and gives us a fair shot to get ahead. 
It teaches us something about what we can accomplish. The first step of collective bargaining isn't sitting down to tell the boss what we want. It's coming together to determine what all of us can agree to that we're demanding. That's where democracy starts. And let me tell you, in our unions, we can understand and overcome issues that plague society. Earlier this month in Italy, thousands of workers took to the streets to march against fascism after a fascist group attacked union offices. In a country where memories of Mussolini's oppression are still vivid, the attacks were a painful reminder that nearly a century ago, Italy's newly founded fascist party began its assault on union halls shortly before taking power. This is why we must organize in the millions, grow our labor movement, and tell this country that unions are for all. Imagine this country if every woman claimed her right as a union member. Imagine this country if every woman in this country knew that she could lead her union to better days still. I often tell people, imagine what it would look like if you had a president of the AFL-CIO who was a woman. Yes, we have that now. And the majority of the executive council were also women. And we passed a resolution to make sure that we could form a men's committee to make sure that we addressed the issues that were important to men. We are the main event. Working people, all of us collectively, every gender, race, culture, or in creed. The labor movement is not a club. It is the spirit and the promise of America that lives in us. If we choose to take it, hold it, and welcome others to join us in it. So if you would all stand, let's take this in together. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. In the shadow of the steeple, I saw my people. By the relief office, I seen my people. As they stood there hungry, I stood there asking, is this land made for you and me? Nobody living can ever stop me as I go walking that freedom highway. Nobody living can ever make me turn back. This land was made for you and me. Everybody, this land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Solidarity forever, and let us all live in the spirit that Harvey K. has given to this university and to all of us and through the speaker series moving forward. Thank you all so much, and I've got your back. The ultimate goal for the union is to have every worker understand that the power that they think that they feel from their employer actually lives within themselves. And if we can have them understand that and understand that that power resonates when they stand together with their fellow flying partners, then whatever the terms are, 
that they want to fight for, we are going to succeed. And this is especially important in my union, I would say, because my union was formed to beat back discrimination. We had to step on a weight scale until 1993. We had to quit if we got pregnant or married. And when the Me Too movement broke, I asked flight attendants to tell their stories because I knew my own experience. I knew that almost every single day I experienced sexual harassment, including the man who came up behind me and rubbed my rear end and said, what, no girdle? How can you look that good without a girdle on? And we didn't tell anyone. We kept working, and so I went into the crew rooms and asked people, what is your experience today? And they said, yeah, when we come across that sometimes, we tell them to stop it, mind their own business. I said, every time? And they said, no, not every time. I said, did you report it? No, it's just part of the job. And when I asked the men during that time who also could have told their stories and who I have seen be objectified on the job because the career was objectified by the airlines, sexualized in marketing schemes for decades. They didn't tell their stories and I asked them why. And they said, Sarah, we work in a profession that's 80% women. And if we're ever going to get what we need at the bargaining table, then we need our flying partners to be equal and seen as equal too. This is a moment for women's equality and we have to lift it up if we're ever going to get forward ourselves. That realization is the most important thing because from there you can build anything and you can tackle any problem and you can address any issue. The labor movement was only ever built by young people being involved and demanding to build it. So young people are going to have to do that now. And I have heard stories of young people who want unions who have Googled it because they don't know where else to go to try to find someone. I've heard stories of young people in tech knocking on the door of a neighbor that they heard was a union organizer. So it was the worker doing the house call to the union organizer. And young people cannot wait for the unions that exist today to build the labor movement of tomorrow. It's in your hands. You will build it. And if you have to build it together, you have that right. We have to get to labor movement 101. And this is why it's so urgent that the president not just say that he supports unions and that he's the most labor-friendly president of all time, but that he actually show the people of this country what it means to be in a union, that you're a part of the democracy, that your voice counts, that you have the ability to stand up and fight back, that you have the ability to say, my working conditions are unsafe and I am not going to work in that space until it is fixed. So <laughs> we could talk offline, I'm sure, but the labor organizing that is happening in this country is not matching the desire. And first, we have to make sure that those of us who have had experience with the labor movement, just because the favorability is there doesn't mean that people know what unions are, how they work, or how it's going to make a difference in their lives. The fact of the matter is that we have two-tiered employment, we have misclassification of workers, we have every attempt to try to define under the law away people's rights to join unions, including just making it incredibly difficult for those who do have the right under the law today to gain one. But if workers sit down together like they did in the 1930s and demand recognition, it would happen like that. We would organize in the millions. We would form our unions. And the young people who have the ability to do that and build them up because they have not yet built up the other things in their lives, are the ones who are going to be able to form that and give the vision to the next generations who are coming after that. It is the only way that we are going to solve all of the major crises of our time. It is the only way that we are going to have an honest conversation about the climate crisis, about the housing crisis, about all of the economic freedoms that FDR spoke about 
and dreamed about for this country because we're not free until people are economically free. And young people who have not had any kind of path or carpet laid down for them are going to have to form this country anew. Why'd you like Roosevelt? Well, no kin. Why'd you like Roosevelt? Well, no kin. Why'd you like Roosevelt? Well, no kin. Lord God to mighty was a poor man's friend. Year of 1945, a good president laid down and died. I knew how all of the poor people felt. They received the message we lost Roosevelt. In his life, there were all indications that Warm Spring, Georgia, he would see salvation. Listen, friend, don't you rush. Elizabeth Shimanoff, she grabbed a brush, dipped it in water and began to paint. Looked at the president and began to think. She never painted a picture for him at night. Knew that the president didn't look right. The time of day, it was 12 o'clock. Tell me that Elizabeth had to stop. Great God Almighty, she started too late. That's why they call this that unfinished portrait. A little bit later, about 1.30, he had a cerebral hemorrhage and the world looked muddy. They called Atlanta, Washington too, like zigzag lightning the call went through. They called long distance to notify his wife. Dr. Bruin said he died at 3.35. Great God Almighty, there was no bells to tone. Less than 30 minutes, the world was in moan. And I cried about Roosevelt. I cried about Roosevelt. I cried about Roosevelt. Well, Roosevelt's administration, Congress assembled. First time in history, part of the Negro general. General Benjamin O. Davis, I'm trying to relate. First Negro general of the United States. And after Dory Miller had shown his skill, they kept sending him to see until he got killed. Roosevelt said, I'll back the attack. Part of the Negro captain over white and black. This qualified man was Hugh Mozak. Racial prejudice, he tried to rule out, invited Negro leaders into the White House. He advocated the fair practice of labor to let the poor man know he was our emancipator, made Madame Bethune a lady of the land. He made part of his will to Mr. Pretty Man. He endorsed inventions of Dr. Washington Carver. This is why that I said he was an earthly father called. He took my feet out of the mar clay. Haven't had to look back at the WPA. That is why I like Roosevelt. Why I like Roosevelt. Why I like Roosevelt. Well, Hoover's administration Congress assembled. All of the poor folk began to tremble. The rich would ride in the automobile. 
depression made poor people rob and steal. But look next door to our beloved neighbor wasn't getting anything for their hard labor. But great God Almighty, there were moonshine stealing. Brought about a crime wave, robbing and killing After Hoover had made the poor man moan Roosevelt stepped in, gave us a comfortable home It was sad about Roosevelt Sad about Roosevelt Sad about Roosevelt Well, I've told you the history of Roosevelt's life now he's done with his grief and strife Great God Almighty, but he left a sweet wife Has been so worried since she was a girl After Roosevelt's death, what would become of the world? She notified her son across the sea Don't get worried about poor me But keep on fighting for victory Your father is dead, boys, you're all grown wouldn't worry about your father, but the world is in moan. It was sad about Roosevelt. Mm, sad about Roosevelt. Mm, sad about Roosevelt. Well, God Almighty knew just what was best. He knew that the president needed a rest. His battle done fought, victory done won. Our problems have just begun Your burden get heavy and you don't know what to do Call on Jesus, he's a president too It's sad about Roosevelt Sad about Roosevelt Sad about Roosevelt Lord God Almighty was a poor man's friend You're listening to the KC Morning Show.